0: Welcome to this edition of Health is Your Wealth, a Walton County conversation. My name is Dee, Dee Harris, and I'm going to be the host of each episode of Health is Your Wealth. I'm the executive director of Walton Wellness, Inc., a nonprofit located here in Walton County. We're dedicated to the prevention of lifestyle-related chronic illness. That's what we do. I'm excited to have a co-host with me on this podcast. His name is Bruce Young. Bruce, you want to say hey to everybody?
1: Hey, Dee Dee, and everybody, thanks for having me. And uh, I am, in fact, a native of Walton County, grew up here, elementary school, Carver, <laughs> Monroe area.
2: You are
0: born and bred, right? <laughs> That's right.
1: I am. And uh, that brings us to our subject matter um, of Walton County. We're going to be discussing the opioid epidemic in Walton County. And Dee Dee, you've got four separate interviews, right?
0: Yeah. Um, we are going to have four different episodes, so this is a series that we're doing, um, and we've got four different episodes that we're going to present with this series.
1: And our first episode, Erin Warren is a recovering addict, and she's got quite a story from what you've said.
0: She does, um, and I mean, you know, she really has shared a lot of details about her journey. She's recovered, our recovering addict uh, been clean seven years. So she really um, can speak about definitely being in addiction, but also she's got enough of years clean under her belt to talk about what it's like living in recovery as well. Um, but I do think it's important to talk about why we chose to do this topic. A lot of people might think uh, the opioid addiction in Walton County, why do we need to talk about that?
1: Yeah, well, it's, a, it's been in the news a lot lately, and it's, I think, countrywide um, as far as the U.S. is concerned.
0: Yeah, and I think that's part of my point is that, you know, a lot of times living in Walton County, we think, oh, well, we don't live in downtown Atlanta, so sometimes we have this thought that we escape some of these types of things right um and that's part of my point is that i think it's important for us to talk about this um in specific to walton county i want to share a little bit of statistics with you bruce i don't know if you know this but um it was pretty surprising to me but around uh up to 29% of patients who are prescribed opioids for chronic pain um, end up misusing them. And if you think about the number of people in the entire United States, 29%.
1: That's a lot of people.
0: That's pretty big. Also, 8 to 12% of people... Um, develop an opioid user disorder, um, and I think is that cal- code for
1: addiction. <laughs> yeah,
0: I think that's kind of code for addiction. I think there are different levels, you know, of addiction, especially when you're talking about prescription drugs. But sure, basically, yes, a, a, some type of dependency, I would say. And then, um, an estimated four to six percent who misuse prescription opioids, they then transition to heroin.
1: Well, I think it's cheaper from what I hear.
0: Yeah, and that is actually one thing that I found out during my interviews with um, several different people that actually heroin is cheap compared to prescription drugs.
1: Right. Wow. Well, that's fascinating. I think we should uh, get into the first episode and hear Aaron's story.
0: I agree. I hope you will listen to our whole series. You'll find us again And, um, send us an email and tell us what you think and, um, give us suggestions of things that you might want to hear about what's happening in, in Walton County. So I will let you listen to Aaron and, um, I hope you enjoy
2: the episode. All right. right. So hello everyone. My name is Aaron Warren. Uh, I'm 31 years old, originally from Marietta, Georgia. I've pretty much lived in Georgia most of my life. Um addiction has taken me to a, a a couple different states and different places around Georgia where I briefly lived. Um, but I'm a Marietta girl. And uh currently in my life today, I just picked up um my seven year uh chip in a twelve step recovery program for seven years of continuous um sobriety from drugs and alcohol.
0: That's awesome. Okay, Erin, so I know that you do um, a lot of work on Facebook, too, along with all of this other work that you've talked about, um, which is really interesting, amazing. I almost feel like we need another podcast just to talk about (laughs) that work, um, because I know we want to get into your personal story, too, but tell us about um, what you're doing personally
2: through, like, your Facebook account and that kind of stuff. Sure. Sure. I use Facebook as a platform to, to share my story more and more, um, to be vulnerable and transparent with where I'm at currently, the struggles I go through currently, as well as in the past, uh, part of the, part of the reason there's a couple of reasons why I do that. Number one, it helps me stay clean and sober today to always be open and honest and transparent with others about where I'm at, what I'm struggling with. So that they can help me through it. Right. Um, But also because I want people to know that they're not alone in their own struggles. Because so many of us walk around this earth um, feeling like we're the only one going through this certain situation or or battling this voice that's so negative in our heads or the voice of self-doubt or shame or fear um, and it's, and it's just part of my life's work to let people know that they're not alone in that mm-hmm. and that we can get through it by being open and honest about our struggles and we get through it together. So that sounds like
0: important work, not, I mean, important work for yourself and your personal journey, but then it also sounds like very important work for others. Uh, Cause that is so true. You know, most of these kind of things like addiction or, anything tends to grow in the dark. Absolutely. Um, so the light is definitely the way to combat it. And that sounds like face your light. <laughs> it is.
2: <laughs> it's, it's the I, light. It's strange. You know, I think it's strange to some people because so many of us worry about others judging us. Right. And so on social media platforms, we want to make our lives look perfect. right? And I try to do the opposite. <laughs> Not TMI. Right. But um, just... I, just try to write with some humility and some vulnerability. Right. Um, and I, and I first started, I've always enjoyed writing. And then I finally got the courage up to start doing it publicly along with speaking. And I didn't even know why I was doing it in the beginning, but then I just started discovering that purpose along the way because I would have people message me and just share the most intimate parts of themselves. Um, and let me know how much uh, me being vulnerable and honest was helping them in the process.
0: That's amazing. So tell us, now we've kind of led up to you, uh, <laughs> your personal story and um, how it led to this being vulnerable and your writing on Facebook. Sure. Um, so if you want to take us back to Once Upon a Time <laughs> <laughs> or In the Beginning. Yeah,
2: <laughs> so I think my story. my story starts with, um my story starts with a long <laughs> history of family dysfunction. Mm. Um not to say I don't love my family cuz I love them dearly, but you know, we all have our dysfunction. Right. Um and so I uh as a young child um Basically, as a young child, I'm introduced to some of these behaviors and patterns um, that my family have carried on for quite some time. Uh, And that consisted of the biggest one, um, a a huge enabler in my family. When I say enabler, I mean someone that um, supported me in partaking in bad behaviors, unhealthy behaviors, um, that would later lead to my full blown active addiction. I see. You know, so as a young child, um, you know, I was very close with my great aunt, and uh, that that led to me. She was more like a grandparent to me in my eyes. She was kind of my world. Right. And so she would just let me do anything I wanted. Right. And that's not that's not good because as a young child, you need boundaries. You need right. someone <laughs> teaching you, you know, what's good for you, what's not, what's right, what's wrong. Um, so I've got my parents at war with my great aunt well we don't want her to do this but my great aunt will let me do that and I just want to spend time with my great aunt because she lets me do whatever I want want, as a kid want to do whatever you want to do so and it it might seem some of these things might seem very harmless whether it's watching a rated r movie or eating candy at midnight you know Mm -hmm. but then you start seeing the more serious side of it because it about nine years old, she bought me alcohol. Mm. Right. You know... I have a nine-year-old daughter currently,
0: and I'm thinking, wow.
2: <laughs> hey, yeah, how would that make you feel if yeah. a family member bought your, your child alcohol? Um, now, at the same time, there's definitely something wrong with me if I'm nine years old walking through the grocery store saying, hey, I want to drink alcohol for the first time, <laughs> right? So... I, I can't just blame. I don't blame today. I mm-hmm. totally accept my part in things. Um, so I, that's when I was first introduced to, to alcohol, right? And we all hear people talking about gateway drugs, and marijuana is the gateway drug. Well, for me, alcohol was the gateway drug.
0: Oh, wow. Um, Interesting.
2: Because a lot of people
0: would probably argue the point of the um, maybe a bridge to illegal drugs coming from alcohol. So interesting that you kind of see it that way.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I was told you, you shouldn't drink, you shouldn't smoke, you shouldn't do drugs. But what I found my own personal experience when I drank um, as a young child, it lifted every worry I had for me. The shyness that I felt immediately went mm-hmm. away. Um, you know, the self-confidence that I lacked, um, that was gone. And I felt confident. I felt comfortable in my skin. And so Mm. this, all of these, um, all of these negative images of myself only get worse and worse the older I get.
0: I see.
2: Um, a part of that is because of the dysfunction within my family and not having a stable home, stable family environment with healthy figures to look up to, only reinforce these negative beliefs about myself. I'm not good enough. I'm inadequate. I don't look or dress the same as other girls. You know, and later on, my sexuality plays a part in this Mm -hmm. because it took me such a long time to figure out that I'm gay, you know. (laughs) Right. But as a child, you know, I dressed like a tomboy. I played with action figures. I had big red curly hair I didn't know what to do with. (laughs) Um, And so all of these things really just um, carried over and only only brought out more and more of those negative beliefs that I, I had about myself. So as a younger person...
0: You didn't recognize that maybe your sexuality was part of what you were struggling with. Absolutely. You just felt not right or something off, maybe yeah. because
2: you felt different. I felt should di- I say I different? Yeah, I felt different. I didn't fit in. Okay, and the kids at school pointed that out, and and they're good at that. My mom pointed it out. You I know, see, right. love her to death, right? But why don't you, was it a statements? Like, why
0: don't you do yeah, this? Or d- why don't you, you need to this wear main. this. Oh, okay.
2: Yeah. Like you need to wear this dress. And, and uh it was like the biggest, but just shameful thing for me to show up to school on picture day in this, you know, little frilly dress with lacy dress socks. Right. And I just felt so humiliated and ashamed. Mm -hmm. My mom had no idea that, that she was causing, you know, that, that action was causing me those types of feelings because the other part that I talk about being an addict and a, an alcoholic, I am both, I don't know how to process emotions. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to communicate emotions to other people. And from very early on, I actually felt very ashamed to need help, to need a hug, So, to go to you and say, I'm really struggling today, I need a hug, like I need to cry, I felt very ashamed to even feel that way. I see. And you didn't know
0: how to ask? No. Because you said you didn't know how to communicate. So, you didn't know how to say,
2: I don't know what I need, but I'm feeling this way. Right. Okay. I never knew how to do that. So, you know, I'm just this big ball of emotions that I stuff constantly. Um, And when I was introduced to drugs and alcohol, it relieved me of all of that internal Mm, agony I was constantly experiencing. Um, Early on, before the drugs and alcohol really picked up in my life, I found different coping mechanisms. I would isolate
0: Right. So just withdraw from everyone. Yeah, I would
2: withdraw. I would would sit up in my room and I would draw, you know, and do art for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. Right. And try to tune the world out. I would um, go outside and live in a make-believe world and climb a tree, which is we think is normal for little kids. But I would take it to the extreme. Um, And then as I got a little bit older and I'm exposed, you know, through school to to different ideas, um, I start self-mutilating.
0: Oh, okay. So, and And for people who may not know exactly what that is, can you explain
2: a little bit? Absolutely. So, self-mutilating is when you hurt yourself, when you're cutting yourself, you're burning yourself, not necessarily not not because you're trying to commit suicide. Right. But simply because you're trying to cope with the things that are stressing you out. For me, I had stuffed all of these feelings and emotions and was in this constant state of fear and anxiety. Um, so when you, um,
0: get into cutting, because this is an issue with a lot of young people, um, and, and like you said, it it doesn't necessarily have to be cutting. It could be burning or just hurting, just feeling pain. Is the pain a release for that anxiety that you're feeling? So it is, it gets to the point because you didn't know how to reach out and ask for help. You didn't really even know how to communicate what you were feeling. You just were so, um, frustrated that it took this form of needing to feel pain for release. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, what I learned is I don't do well with emotional pain, Mm -hmm. but I can handle physical pain. I see. And so it was an exchange, right. Of that pain and a release for me. So when you hurt yourself and
0: you feel that pain, do you feel relieved
2: for a period of time or is it just that instant? A short period of time because then you find yourself going back to this again and again. I see. Just because it
0: worked for a minute. So at least
2: that's better than nothing. It's a short term fix. Okay. You know, which is
0: that a form of addiction as well when you start doing that? So that almost might've been your first addiction, right? Yes.
2: Yep. Um, So that that went on for a while. And it's a behavior, of course, I'm very ashamed about. So Mm -hmm. you see this just pattern of me feeling ashamed. Right. But then doing behaviors that only add to that shame. Right. Because I didn't know any different. This is the unhealthy pattern I was stuck in, you know, and stayed in for a long time. So later on, middle school is really where, you know, the drugs and alcohol picked up. Um, Started smoking weed. Uh, started drinking as often as I could, you know, whether it was like family functions, taking a sip of grandpa's whiskey sour, right, or going to stay with my great aunt, and she would take me to the liquor store, you know, and, and just let me put whatever I wanted in the buggy, and, and she would pay for it. Um, and Now, did
0: she let you go home and drink in
2: front of her, or yeah. she just made it available? No, she, yeah. Or did she
0: drink with you? Was she an alcoholic as well?
2: So she was what we consider a dry drunk, where uh-huh. she had stopped drinking many years ago, but she never um she never developed any healthy coping mechanisms. Okay. So
0: So it almost she almost kinda enjoyed watching you drink. Is that part of
2: it? You know, I can't answer that right. to be honest. I really can't. I just I the best answer I can give you is she was lonely. Mm -hmm. She was codependent. She was an enabler. And as long as I would stay with her, um, she would let me do whatever I I wanted. So it was kind of an exchange for your company, for someone being there,
0: that that was a way that she could keep you.
2: Yes. I see. So later on, as I dive into uh, more and more into my addiction, You know, I start going and trying different substances. It quickly snowballs, Um, you know, by high school, by 16 years old, 17 years old, I'm a full blown cocaine addict. I mean, it escalates. Yes. There was no slow progression. Um, We say addiction is a progressive disease. Mm -hmm. It gets worse over time left untreated, it doesn't just clear up on its own. Right. You know, it's not like a wound that that uh, you know, a not serious, you know, scratch or cut that will heal on its own. Right. Um so sometimes addiction progresses very slowly in life. So you might see older adults come in and say, "I don't know, I turned 40, I've been fine my whole life, but when I turned 40, you know, I just couldn't stop drinking." And wow. then there's me, the opposite end of the spectrum that it just quickly grabbed a hold of me and and wouldn't let go, and I didn't want it to let go. I see. So um, you were
0: holding on to it as tightly as it was holding on to you as soon as you kind of got into the heavier drugs. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, um, in my career, one of the things that I have done is teach a drug and alcohol class, and one of the things that we always taught, and I was just wondering how much you have heard this is your genetics play a big role mm-hmm. in your tolerance level. And so often people if they have a lower tolerance to drugs or alcohol, their bar is set lower to trigger that addiction. So it almost sounds like that you had the bar for addiction set lower possibly than maybe other people might. Right. Um, Cuz we're all pre, you know, disposed mm-hmm. to certain things depending upon our genetics. Have you do you have a history of addiction in your family? Yes. You did say that your great aunt. so I'm wondering how many family members have an addiction?
2: Um, as far as I've been able to go back, which is not far at all, just a couple generations, I know my dad's side of the family is littered with alcoholics and my great aunt happened to be on my dad's side of the family. Okay. You know, so for my great aunt, she had stopped drinking in her late Uh twenties. But as you get older, the doctors start prescribing you different narcotics. Right. So then she was abusing and misusing the narcotics she was prescribed. I see. Um, So the addiction continued. Those addictive behaviors continued. It just changed it just forms, changed, or are yeah.
0: not even maybe forms, but it changed its way from yeah. alcohol into drugs or whatever.
2: Right, because the the common the denominator, method, I guess I should say, the method the change method, <laughs> definitely. The common denominator is. You know, she's in pain for her, not physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain. She's lonely. Right. I'm in pain, spiritual pain, emotional pain. I'm lonely because I don't know how to let people in. Right. And we're both seeking toxic relationships within one another as well as substances to fill that void that we've both lived life with.
0: Wow. And you seem so clear about this relationship. And I'm just guessing though, this is years of your journey and yes. the work that you've done on yourself to recognize this, this kind of I mean because it's pretty introspection. Amazing. Yes. You're very introspective and you are able to really recognize these things in your life. So um I definitely commend you
2: for that. It's amazing. Thank you. Um you know and this and I will say the relationship with my great aunt it's it it's painful to talk about because I loved her so much. And then to experience firsthand how addiction truly affects the entire family. It's very painful. Um, I, so when I, when I was introduced to heroin and I, and I dove into that addiction later down the road, it got to the point between my great aunt and I that Uh, she would drive me down there to the Bluff, to what we call the Bluff, which is an area in Atlanta where the majority of the heroin comes from. And, you know, she would buy it for me. And the stipulation was, I will take you down there. I will buy heroin for you, but you have to use it in front of me and you have to explain how you shoot up. Okay. And that... (sighs) At the time, I'm so, I'm so badly addicted. I know that's wrong. I know this isn't right. I know none of this is right. But I need it so bad that I'm willing to do that. Okay. For me, exp- exposing a family member to something like that is traumatic.
0: Okay.
2: Um, because no one should have to experience that. mm mm-hmm. And I don't know how to express this to make that more clear on why I feel like that was a very traumatic moment for me. Um... Th- it was traumatic because I let someone into the true nature of the disease. You were you
0: were completely making yourself vulnerable to this because sickness. you were exposing everything. You were Absolutely. laying all your cards on the table in front of her. And so why did she want you to do that? What was the what was the, I get the using it in front of her, but why was the
2: explain how you shoot up? Was this for her knowledge? I think she was just trying to understand in her own sick way. I see. So, of course, I had manipulated. I was a master manipulator. And she was easy to manipulate, you know. So the what led up to that was, this is what I did with my family members. Okay, I want to get help but <laughs> I need to get high first. Right. Okay. I will go do this. I will go into detox. I will go to the methadone clinic, but you know, and I, and, and that's what that, that one situation, she was going to take me to the methadone clinic, um, to help get me off of the, the heroin, um, and the pain pills. But I told her, well, they won't give me methadone unless I have opiates in my system. And they're going to drug test me. And I don't have anything in my system. Is that true? Which was a lie.
0: Okay. Well, was it true that they wouldn't give you methadone unless you have? That is true. That
2: is true. But I lied about not having any in my my system. system. Right. Because I needed to get high. I was in withdrawals. I was feeling sick. And I'll be damned if I'm going to go get help or get treatment and not use one last time. Right. You know, so that's what led to that. But there were so many instances like that where it was just she and I in our own sick world, you know, and I would say, Hey, I need you to drive me to see my dope man, because he's going to sell me some methadone because you know, I missed my dose at the clinic today. And it was just so sick.
0: And of course he wasn't selling you methadone. He was selling you heroin.
2: I would just put some, some, um, you know, plain white pills in my hand that I found around the house. And when he would slip me the dope, Right. I would just hide it. And she'd say, well, show me the methadone. And I'd show her the methadone.
0: I see. So you were very um, premeditated about your lies and how you were going to cover up.
2: Yeah, unfortunately. Um, yeah, it
0: Sounds like you were kind of good at that.
2: Um, and that's just because you you learn how to survive. You learn how to get what you need and you don't care who you hurt or screw over to do it. And this is, you know, this is the ugly side of addiction. In the beginning, as a teenager, it's fun. Mm -hmm. It's new. It's exciting. I don't know why they told me drugs were so bad because they make me feel so good. Right. What's so bad about this? And then by the time you finally understand what's so bad about it, it's too late. I see. Um, You know, and so, so my pattern was different ages I would... Uh, become addicted to different substances, um, you know, weed, alcohol. I'm drinking every day at 15, 16 years old. Then I find cocaine. and Yeah, I wanted to go back to that. You said you found cocaine. How did
0: you find cocaine? Was this someone at school that introduced it to you? And are we
2: talking about snorting cocaine? Snorting it, smoking it, injecting it, okay. all of it um, free basing it as we refer, where you put it on some tinfoil and you, you right. You put the lighter underneath the tin foil, and you inhale the smoke okay. or you pack your cigarette with it and you, you smoke your cigarette packed full of cocaine. And this, how did you get introduced <clears throat> to it? Um, kids at school, because I delve right into the drug culture okay. and it was very easy to find, um, you know, kids at school, it's like one addict can just sniff out another addict. I see. We just we can look at each other you're and like just, magnets. Just know you're like me. You I know. See, right. <laughs> Whether and it's is that
0: part of the attraction too? Because it is a sense of community. You fit in. You fit in, you have you know you know the struggle. You know, mm-hmm. you know, all of the things that I'm dealing with. You know the feeling to need it how to go about getting it. So it's just, it's really like a, it's a community. And
2: it's that. It is. Filling that void. The void. Um, and that's perfect that you said that because it was a sense of belonging. My mom would say, why don't you have friends? I was scared of people. I was so scared of people because I was so really? self-conscious yeah. about myself. I didn't want to look anyone in their eye. I didn't want anyone to talk to me. I didn't want the teacher to call on me. I was terrified all the time um and that's one of what we call the isms there's alcohol and then there's the isms okay the the fear that we're filled with until we take that drink or that drug i see and so when i would my mom says why don't you get any friends and then i'm like okay i got some friends and she's like not those friends you know (laughs) and i'm like they're like me Um, now you
0: talked a lot about your great aunt. So where were your parents in all of this? Did they know you were using?
2: Yes. Okay. Oh man. I was, so I was in and out of my parents' house at the age of 16. Okay. Um, was this
0: by them kicking you out or by you saying I'm out of here? I'm leaving by me
2: leaving. Okay. And so, um, at this point, It is, the situation at home with my parents is so volatile. We're constantly fighting. I'm constantly paranoid because I'm doing something wrong. And they know I'm doing it wrong and doing something wrong. And they're trying to catch me. So it's this game of, you know, cat and mouse.
0: And And so,
2: you know, they know. mm -hmm.
0: And they know that, you know, Mm -hmm. correct? But nobody's talking about
2: it out loud. Or if they do... I lie and I leave. That's my go-to. Defensive. Oh man, I'm combative. I'm angry. Okay. I'm screaming. I'm yelling. I'm throwing things. I'm cussing them out. So at that point, at that point my dad starts getting physical. Mm-hmm. Now I understand today he didn't know what to do and he was doing the best he could. Right. Because he has because he was so frustrated yes. by this point. So dad's getting physical. So what, you know, I'm so manipulative. Um, he would, we would get in these physical fights. Sometimes they were fist fights. Sometimes they were just shove each other around and, or he'd hold me down on the ground and I, you know, just different types of, and slap me, um, you know, and, and th- I'm not saying this cause I'm a victim. Right. This is just what happened. Gotcha. So the first time that it happened, I was 16. I went to school the next day, and I told the school administrators. I see. So they would emancipate me. They emancipated me, so then legally I could move out of my parents' house. And that's what I did. I went, and I— Now, how did you
0: know that they—how did you know about emancipation, all this stuff? Is this somebody is giving you advice on what to do, um, or—because it does seem like often, especially young— drug users, they just know how to manipulate the not the system right. as well as the emotional relationships in there. It's all about networking. Okay. So you <laughs> learned this, and you learned this term, emancipation, from your parents, from your friends, or the people within your drug group.
2: Right. Okay. Right. It's all about networking, no matter what we're doing. Right. <laughs> so, so they emancipate me, and I move out. And... Um, you know, it's just, but but the way that, you know, Southern culture. This is the thing. Southern culture is oh, we hide our crazy, right? <laughs> we don't talk about it. We sweep yes. it under the rug. So everyone we put
0: on a face. face. We we keep yeah. up appearances.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's right,
2: and and that's not that. It's very much with Southern culture, you know. So I'm still showing up to family events just totally strung out you know everybody knows but nobody says anything or they whisper um I know they all know so I'm in and out as fast as possible um you know and then it happened to be my sister would be the only one that would actually hold me accountable but it was in the worst way possible we'd be at a family event she'd be like you're effing high right now and punch me
0: Oh wow! You know, and And
2: she (laughs) would say that just
0: (laughs) so everybody would hear it. Yeah, put me on blast, Essie. Right.
2: So, so the relationships—I say this just to show the relationships within my family are just tumultuous. Um, I'm not being honest with anyone. They all know. I know that they know. But I'm so ashamed, and I also am protective of my addiction because I'm not yet ready to let it go that I will fight, I will lie, I will run away, I will do whatever I need to to protect my addiction. Okay. Um, so, you know, cocaine was a thing for a year, two years, um, and then, you know, ecstasy and crack and Xanax and marijuana and stuff I don't even know what it was that I took or smoked. Um, it was just... It it had just become my life. And, you know, I end up in high school. Something that was very important to me was graduating high school because um, my biological siblings, neither one of them graduated. Um, They were homeschooled. And so before the drug use began and took a hold of me, it was important for me to have that moment of pride of graduating, walking across the stage, receiving the diploma, have my family you know, in the audience watching, I wanted to make them proud. Right. And this is a theme for me throughout my life. I always wanted to make my family proud. I wanted their validation. I wanted to know that I was enough, but my actions, I couldn't get what I needed because my actions were always doing the wrong thing, even though that's what I desperately desired and craved. Um, and so back to high school, I ended up, you know, dropping out, uh, in 10th grade. And then I'm like, okay, what am I doing? So I go back in 11th grade and then they actually kick me out in 12th grade. And at this point, the administrator calls my mom and says, Miss Warren, you know, we're, we're uh, kicking your daughter out of school. She's on drugs. She barely shows up when she does. She's high. You know, we know she's up to no good. And my mom said, fine, do what you need to do. Cause I don't know what to do with her anymore and hangs up the phone. Wow. And the administrator looks at me and she says, now, before you have any, this is so strange, but she says, before you go having any babies, you need to be off these drugs at least five years so your body can heal or you're, you're going to be messed up and your babies are going to be messed
0: up. So that was her parting words <laughs> that to was,
2: you? Yeah, that, those were her parting words, you know, so, um, so then I didn't have, you know, anything. So then you didn't
0: have that goal of graduating
2: anymore because that was taken from you. It was, I viewed it as it was taken from me. I gave it away. Right. But at the time, I was a victim. And this is what really fed into my addiction. Most families deal with, you know, their their addicted loved one plays the victim. It's everybody else's fault. It's everyone's fault I'm this way. God made me this way. If he was so powerful, he wouldn't have made me an addict. He wouldn't have made me gay. I see. My family doesn't, you know, my family doesn't accept me because I'm a freaking, you know, drunk, gay junkie. Um, Poor me, pitiful me, right? The school kicked me out. They didn't even offer to help me. It's everybody else's fault. Yes, Because I am incapable of... Of accepting responsibility for my actions because I'm so delusional. Gotcha.
0: And so you started building like each block was a reason mm -hmm. and you started building these blocks and just kind of, you know, blocking yourself in around all of these blocks, which caused you to be, you know, I am not in control here. So I'm not, I can't control this addiction. I'm not in control of any of these things. I'm just this victim.
2: Oh, no, I'm still in, I'm the victim, and I'm still in denial about my addiction. I'm in denial about my sexuality. you're
0: you're not addicted. According to you, you're not not addicted. I just
2: don't see the problem. I'm not hurting anybody else. I see. You know, what are you guys so wound up about? Right. Right.
0: That's got to be the most frustrating part for, Mm -hmm. you know, something... I mean for somebody who has a loved one like a child or whatever that's addicted because just getting you to recognize there is a huge problem here and you're just continuing to say there's no problem at all right now and I don't know if you can put yourself in that mindset but did you really know there was a problem and you're just saying there's not a problem or
2: do you really not think that this is a problem I was so delusional at 16, 17 years old. I did not, I don't believe, I I truly don't believe I thought it was an issue. Later on in my 20s, that's when I started becoming more clear. I see. Because you've got to think, the, the other factor in this is my brain isn't developed, and I have stunted my development right, since the, the age of nine. You know, off and on since the age of nine. Right. Um, and so my executive functioning, none of that. I'm not able to think rationally. You know, I can't, I'm not, my cognitive abilities are gone. Not that I ever really seem to have any good ones, you know. So um, that, you know, that stunted and then the drugs and alcohol on top of it just created all these crazy delusions in my mind. I see. Um, I mean, my parents looked at me like I was a wild animal because that's how I acted. Right. I was deranged, you know, and, and the things I did were deranged and they were awful. Um, and so, you know, heroin came into the picture and, um, again, introduced within the community. Okay. Right. Of our So was this,
0: once you, once the administrator said, you know, this is it, you left high school and were you where were you at this time living at home mm-hmm. did you have a job were you doing anything
2: constructive in your life yeah i'd had so i've always <laughs> i've always had a job they didn't last long but i've always had a job but i always lost them due to drug use i see because you wouldn't show up or either you were um, high at work i would call out i would show up messed up you know I would leave early, show up late. Yeah. Okay. You know, just always from the drug because I needed to use. Right. Um, so at this point I don't, I don't remember when they kicked me out if I was living at home or not. I was in and out of my parents' house. I was going to my great aunt's house and I was going to, um, the guy I was with at the time. This is like, before I had accepted my sexuality, right. So a big factor in all of this too is I don't know who I am, right. Um, however, I know I have an attraction to women, but mm-hmm. I also know that's forbidden, gotcha. Within my family, right, and that's forbidden within the religious, um, with, within the Southern Baptist community right. as well, right. So this
0: is you were raised in the church, I'm guessing, mm-hmm. right? Southern so your Baptist family was they. Went to church regularly or it was something talked about at home?
2: When we were younger, mom tried to get us to church regularly. It didn't always happen. And then the church thing kind of fizzled out. But my mom, so going back a little bit, my mom had um, withdrew me from public school in the third grade because a girl hit on me. Okay. (laughs) Um, A girl hit on me. I went home. I felt very weird about it. You know, I told my sister, my sister tells mom the next day, my mom withdraws me from that school, homeschools me for the rest of the year, and then puts me in a private Christian school the next year. Okay. So that further enforces, it's not okay to be gay. I see. Right? Right. So this is, so I'm with men. I have a boyfriend at 16, 17 years old. It doesn't feel comfortable, you know? And um, so anyway, I'm in and out of my parents' house, either living with the boyfriend or I'm living with my great aunt. Um, And so at this point, the boyfriend introduces me to selling drugs. So here's another layer of it. Um, Just like you can become addicted to self-harm, drugs, alcohol, other unhealthy behaviors, you can become addicted to selling drugs as well. Because it's an ego trip, right? I'm needed. I have I have this inherent need to be needed. Okay, my whole life. And I have always tried to fill it with the wrong things. Mm -hmm. So dealing drugs was one of those everyone needs me, I have a sense of purpose. I'm needed in this sick, healthy, I mean, unhealthy, toxic relationship. It's my sense of purpose, right? Because me on my own, I don't have a sense of purpose. Um, so we start selling drugs and that just opens up, it opens up a whole nother world, you know, where I'm very naive to be doing all the things that I'm doing. Right. I'm very naive. All I see is here's how you can make a lot of money really fast. You have a sense of purpose. You feel respected. You feel powerful. You, you know, you so have
0: it fills all, it checks all the boxes, all the boxes that you don't have the, currently um, in your own life.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I start doing this. And then, and then a little while into the process, you know, you, the people that you're selling for start showing you signs of who they really are. And, you know, you've got guns being held to your head and saying, if you don't do this, I'll, you know, kill your family. And um, at, at this point, um, you know, I've, I've stopped doing cocaine so much because it's making me sick. I'm I'm throwing up every time I'm using Coke, right. whether I shoot it, whether I smoke it, whether I snort it. My mom's given me pregnancy tests because I'm throwing up so much, Right, you know, and I'm telling my mom, mom, I'm not pregnant. It's just the drugs. Oh, huh. how sad is that? Yeah. But I, I can't eat. I can't sleep. You know, all the all the classic symptoms. I'm emaciated. Um, so I try to stop you know, doing the Coke so much, but of course I fill it with everything else. Right. With Xanax, with hallucinogens, with ecstasy, with weed, with whatever's available. Um, and you know, one morning I have to get up at three, four in the morning and go pick up someone that was a part of the crew and take him here and basically get him out of town because, you know, he's wanted. Okay. Um, and, when, and then I need to go take the girls to school. Okay. How much sense does that make? <laughs> right? Interesting, I need to take right? my friend who's still in high school, who's with this guy, I need to get up and take them to school, and I need to bring some cocaine so they can wake up because they've been up partying all night, they need to wake up to go to school. Wow. So at this point, I've stopped using Coke, and... He thinks that I'm an undercover because I'm not you. I'm just, oh. I'm going to sell them a bag, but I don't want any. And he was like, no, you, you got to use this. Right. You're an undercover. If you're not, you know, so I'm trying to lay off the Coke use. And then I got a dude pointing a gun at my head, accusing me of being an undercover. So then I have to do some Coke and then I'm throwing up. And then, you know, right. this is just, just a vicious cycle. And another oh, vicious God, cycle. It's disgusting. Right. So that point in my life, it was very stressful, and I always say, um, you know, if it wasn't for drugs and alcohol, I wouldn't have been able to deal with the paranoia or the stress right. because the cops were after us. The GBI was doing an investigation. Later on, the FBI was doing an investigation. Um, I don't go into the the details that much, right? Um, just for safety precautions but it was a very stressful time in my life.
0: Yeah, I would imagine so. That sounds pretty stressful to have that many uh, law enforcement or- organizations after you or looking at you, for sure. So um, when did heroin... So you were already doing some prescribed opioids. You mentioned Xanax. Mm-hmm. And um, were you ever at any time taking your great aunt's mm-hmm. pills? Or she was share? I'm guessing maybe openly sharing them with you?
2: My great aunt was... Um, Prescribe benzos benzodiazepines which is what xanax are um and that's that's a big that's a big one you know right. it's everyone's doing it every right. they call we call them our happy pills right um but she never had any painkillers um so how i was introduced to painkillers was when i was selling drugs for this particular group of people uh-huh. um, and oxycontin was so big Okay. Right. So OxyContin's the money maker and it was the hardest thing for us that and Xanax were the hardest thing for us to get a hold of to sell and they were our biggest money makers.
0: So how did you get a hold of OxyContin to sell? Was it through like the pain clinics and the you know doctor shopping kind of way or there, is somebody making them in like a pill cl- in a pill mill type deal?
2: No pill mill. There were trips out of the country. Wow, because the the laws in other countries, um, well, there at that point maybe there weren't there weren't any existing laws surrounding controlled substances. Okay, so there were trips out of the country to go buy them by the hundreds and bring and then them you back. Were
0: carrying them on your person, when I you never came participated back in. in this. Okay,
2: you know, fortunately, um, they, you know, the other people in the, in the group did it. Okay, and um, so
0: you were just part of using distributing
2: selling them. So this is how I was introduced to opiates. Um, I get curious. I'm like, why, why do people want these Oxycontin eighties? I was, you know, selling 80 milligram pills and, and 40 milligram pills, but everyone really wanted the green eighties. Okay. You know, (laughs) I'm like, what is so great about these pills? I get curious. Right. So I try it and I'm like, Oh, that's nice. I see. That's a real nice feeling, you know, and right. it was, it was just so nice. I don't know how else to put it. Wow. right? <laughs> it wasn't like anything else I'd ever experienced before. So basically everything goes downhill, you know, make a long story short. Everything starts going downhill with the selling drugs because my, the, the main guy that's kind of running all of us, he sees that I'm showing up high on oxycontin more and more and he's like what are you turning into a junkie like i don't let junkies work for me oh and i'm like what are you talking about i don't i don't understand what the term junkie means i'm like what what are you talking about right and he's like are you addicted and i'm like no not at all he's like all right so he's starting to get suspicious of my use right and he's like not comfortable with me using them. I don't know what the problem is because I've never been so physically dependent on anything anymore. Right. Uh, uh, Yet, excuse, not anymore, but I haven't been physically dependent on anything yet. Um, And that never happened while I was selling those. What happened was all that fell apart. I decided to stop selling. My sense of purpose in the world went away. Yeah. So then what was I gonna do with myself? Right. Well, I was just gonna use drugs. My job was gone. So now I'm just gonna use drugs full time again. I don't have anything um, putting a barrier between how much drugs I'm using now. And so that's when I found heroin. I um, you know, my friends my friends were like, Hey, you know And heroin is cheaper than Oxycontin, mm-hmm. is it
0: right? And is it easier, more accessible, easier to get? Absolutely.
2: Okay. Yes. Yeah. It's so, it's so easy to get. So at this point, I haven't been, I haven't delved into the heroin culture. I, I was introduced to it while I was with my boyfriend that I was living with on and off. Right. Um, he introduced it to me once and I was so messed up on it. I had to get my friend come and pick me up from work. So break up with the boyfriend. stop selling drugs, stop involving myself with those people. My friend, we're sitting around one night, and she's like, hey, you were so messed up that day. Remember when I had to come pick you up from work and you you'd used heroin? I'm like, yeah. She's like, I want to know what that feels like. Let's mm-hmm. find some. And I'm like, I don't know where to find it. Like, you know, he got it. Right. I said, but if you can find it, I'll pay for it. Huh. And this is how it all started. So she found it. <laughs> so she she got she found some guys that were strung out, and, you know, they started getting it for us, and then we started going with them to get it for us. And so now I'm introduced to, to that culture. So we're snorting it. Okay. Well, the dudes that we're with are just full-blown junkies. They're strung out. They're shooting it. One's smoking it, one's shooting it. We're just snorting it. And I'm like, man, I'm never, I'll never use a needle. That's, that's just crazy. (laughs) That's classic, isn't it? Yeah, I'll never do this. I
0: won't, and you keep putting lines for yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll never do that. And then you cross that line. I'll never do that. I'll
2: never smoke crack. And then I'm freebasing cocaine and smoking an eight ball of crack, you know? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because that's dirty. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know, I'm above that. Right,
0: right. And I hear that a lot from pe- other um, people that I've talked to with addictions and stuff. It's like you keep drawing this line in the sand, but then you keep crossing it. <laughs> it's
2: inevitable. <laughs> it's, we can laugh about it now, right. you know, but right. it's you have to have a sense of humor about it. But it's inevitable. Um, and I did. Every single one of those lines I crossed, I, I, you know, I, I drew in the sand, I crossed, and, uh, and then some. And so um everything's going really well with snorting heroin. Okay. And and my at the time when I first started doing it, I look I remember this vividly. I look at my friend and I'm like if everyone would just do a little bit of heroin every day, like the world would be a better place.
0: Oh,
2: right. That's how delusional I was. Yeah. Um and it's kind of embarrassing saying that, but yeah. <laughs> that's the type of addict I am, right? <laughs> you know. <laughs> So everything's going really well with snorting it. Um, I wake really, up. Really, you
0: have the answer, but everybody else is the one that's lost. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, I remember waking up one day. I'm back at home living with my parents, and I don't feel good. I'm like, have, I'm... I'm having cold chills, but I'm like sweaty and clammy and my stomach hurts and my legs are achy and my nose is running and my eyes are watering. And I'm like, am I sick? I call my buddy that I'm doing dope with on a regular basis. And I'm like, man, I don't feel good. And he's like, what's going on with you? And I tell him and he's like, oh, man, I was like, what? He goes, dude, you're sick. I was like, well, yeah, I don't feel good. He's like, no, you're like dope sick. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, you're addicted to it. I was like, I don't get addicted. Mm -mm. That doesn't happen to me. Right. Because cocaine doesn't cause those types, you know, that type of withdrawals. Right. 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 The hallucinogens don't cause that type of withdrawal. So I've I'm just in disbelief. I'm in that denial. Right. That no, and he's like, "Yeah, as soon as we go get some today, you're gonna feel right as rain." I'm like, "I don't believe you. I've just got a cold."
1: Yeah, <laughs> you, right. You
2: know. And sure enough, we went. We copped some dope. I snorted a line. I immediately felt better. Hmm. And so
0: that was
2: now a physical addiction yeah, for you. Yeah. So now it's physical, but I'm like, "Oh la la la," we just won't talk about it, right? Because that's what we do. Yeah. In my family, and the Southern culture, we just don't talk about things and we we carry on. Yeah. So because I won't actually process these things and talk about them and think, well, what does this actually mean for me? And do I really want to go down this road? And I don't do any of that. I just keep rolling with it. Because
0: it's too hard. It is too hard. And it's a lot probably to have to delve into you for sure. So um, where did... where did heroin finally land you? Like, what was your, your lowest point with heroin?
2: Oh, God. All right. Um, eventually, I start shooting it. My lowest point, uh, yeah, I'll, <laughs> short, short story. There's a, a failed rehab attempt um, because I'm, I'm stealing thousands of dollars from my great aunt. I'm forging checks. I'm stealing credit cards. I'm taking money out of her ATM. She doesn't press charges, so I continue to do these behaviors. So she
0: knows, I mean, she knows it's you. She knows
2: you're doing Mm -hmm. this, but she just kind of turns a blind eye. There's a a conversation about it. Okay. But nothing ever changes. I see. Well, it, you know, so there's a failed rehab attempt. Basically, they said you're you're either going to go to jail or you're going to go to rehab. I have yet to been to jail at this point. Okay. So um, I choose rehab. Um, the night before, the night before rehab, my cousin and I robbed my dope man. And, um, I try to, I try to kill myself Mm. because I'm, I'm 18 or 19 years old. And I have in my delusion have decided God's purpose for me is to be a junkie and to get high. And if I cannot get high, I can't fulfill my purpose. There's no point in me living I was so scared to be separated from heroin that I was willing to kill myself to not deal with the pain. I see. Um, So I I loaded up what we call a hot shot, um, you know, which is going to kill you. And I'm fixing it up. And my cousin walks into the room and he's like, you know, what the F are you doing? And he grabs everything away from me. Um, You know, and, and so that's kind of, that's one of those places it took me to, right? That's not the lowest though. Right. So a felt treatment stent, and then I'm running away from halfway houses. Um, I met this girl in rehab, and, uh, you know, these we call them rehab romances. Um, at this time, I'm really struggling with my sexuality. I've had a girlfriend but won't call her my girlfriend. Um, my counselor accuses me of being gay. You know, I'm like, absolutely not. But long story short, I end up you know, months and months later reconnecting with this girl I met in rehab and running away with her. Okay. Um I am like infatuated with her. She's head over heels for me. However, we're both heroin addicts and this is how we bonded in treatment. Right. I'm doing heroin before it was the cool thing to do mm-hmm. as it is now. Right. So I'm in treatment at 19 years old with a bunch of old drunks. I can't relate to any of them. Right. I'm like, uh, you're just an alcoholic. What do you know? Right. So this chick walks in and she's the only other heroin addict in there. So we immediately bond. Right. Right. So we end up, <clears throat> we basically run away together. And you know, I, I just find myself, I find myself living at, at strange men's um, homes that I don't, <laughs> that I don't know. And I, uh we are hopping from men to men to men hmm. and i am trusting that she's always going to find us a place to sleep at night um and then i realize she's prostituting herself oh. and then we're sleeping on some strange man's houseboat where he's left us to stay um and we have no money. We're thirty miles away from the city. We're living in this marina with no food, no money, no this, no that. Um, we're hitchhiking thirty miles to get doping back every day. She's prostituting herself with anyone. Um, and and that was that was one of my lowest points in my addiction. Um, I cared for her so much. I did not want her to be prostituting. But I couldn't stop her. Right, and I also felt like if I left her, she would die.
0: I see. So once again, you found your purpose,
2: right, for taking care of her and being with her. Yeah. So this is this is my pattern. My parents come to pick me up and take me home. I refuse, and that it's so sad to think about. How Be-
0: did your parents know where you were?
2: I'm talking to them. Oh, you
0: are. Mm-hmm. So you're always in contact with them, and they just are, they know what you're doing, but they're just worried to sick know where you are. No. And happy to know you're alive.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're worried sick. They come and they try to pick me up, and I send them away. And they're like, we know what y'all are doing. You're going to die. You're going to kill yourself. I mean, and I'm just like, screw you. I can't leave her. Please go. I see. You know, and so we, you know, I find myself – Strange men are exposing themselves to me, trying to proposition me. Um, I'm running away from them. Um, she's having multiple men at a time over to the boathouse. And, you know, I'm taking a walk because I don't want to engage in that. I don't right. want to. I'm trying to block it out. Right. Um, I've never felt so alone in my life and just so... Um just so empty you know and, and helpless i'm assuming. and helpless and so this is the first time no not the first time this is one of the most memorable moments for me when spirituality comes into my story i go to take a walk because she's got these strange men over um exchanging services with them and i'm sitting on the dock and i've punched a bunch of coolers and i've broken my knuckles Cause I'm so angry and I look up at the night sky and that's when, um, I, I hear this voice in my head that's not mine and something says it's going to be okay. Hmm. And for like three seconds, I felt a sense of peace, a very Hmm. short lived three seconds. And then it's right back into my harsh reality. Um, that was one of the lowest points. Um, there's so many like that, right? You know, a dope man sexually assaulted uh, um, someone I was seeing, and a month later she killed herself. Mm. And she died thinking I sold her for dope. Wow.
0: So at this point, um, obviously you do end up leaving her or either by force. I know that you mentioned there was a couple of – you know, arrests in there, mm-hmm. or you have been to jail several times. Fast forward us to mm-hmm. where it is that either you, did something happen within you to decide to get clean, or was this the court that, that forced you and then you accepted it? What happened at this point when you decided to get clean?
2: I never accepted help from the court. Um, any interventions they did, I... Like sober, abstinence, abstaining was not a word in my vocabulary. Right. So I would go into probation drunk and, and say, send me to jail. I
0: see. So you would rather (laughs) you would rather go to jail and be able to drink or whatever than to do. Was it part of it? um, Was it a rebellion, or was it even? That's not even entering into your mind. It was
2: just. I didn't know how not to live that lifestyle. Just your
0: whole life was built around
2: this. Yeah, that's all I knew. And um, and the thought of abstinence, it was never a thought. Right. That was just absurd. Um. So. So. Yeah. I ended up. You know. I. I. I ended up leaving on my own decision. I had my parents come and pick me up. I don't even remember. We were living in one of the Carolinas. I don't even remember which one.
0: Okay.
2: N- you know. That's how messed up I was. Right. Um. My parents came and picked me up. You know. So I made the decision to leave that situation. Um. I've always had this. You know. We all have this gut instinct. Mm-hmm. And no matter how much drugs I tried to drown out, my gut, I, it always, always told me the right thing to do. I would just ignore mm-hmm. it. Right. But there are certain periods of time, just like living with her on that houseboat um, and surviving through that, my gut was like, you can't do this anymore. Right. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I just knew I couldn't do that. Right. So I left. Um, and, and at that point, you know, fast forward through my story – I'm am going I'm switching out heroin for you know, um, roxy cotton because now they're now they're um, you know putting a lot of safety precautions on oxycotton. They're changing they're changing its chemical makeup so you can't shoot them up. Um, you know, th- they're doing all kinds of things to put these controlled measures, right. Right. To prevent this opioid crisis from happening. So I switched to Roxy Cotton, or I'm doing heroin or I stopped doing those and I'm going to the methadone clinic, but I'm doing methadone. I'm doing Xanax. I'm drinking two bottles of liquor a day. Wow. M- the truth for me is once I put one narcotic into my body, I want more narcotics in my body. Right alcohol included. So the methadone clinic's designed for you to, to get off of the opiates to, you know, become physically healthier. Um, it's a harm reduction model. They want you to get your life back together, work on your family relationships, work on your personal relationships, get a job, get emotionally stable all while you're on methadone. Okay. It seems like a great model. But for someone like me, my intentions were not to do any of that. My intentions were to avoid the withdrawal symptoms right. and the empty hole I felt when I didn't have a substance in my body. Right. You know, so the methadone didn't work. Then I'm trying Suboxin at Peachford. You know, it's a it's a local treatment center. Then I'm doing Subutex, which is like Suboxin, but then I'm shooting that up. Wow. It it just. I just jumped from one. Then I'm like, okay, I can't do any drugs at all, so I'll just drink. Half my family's and al- are alcoholics, and it's legal and it's socially accepted, and that's how I justified and rationalized it in my mind. I see. It was never a problem for me before, which was bull, right? right? You know. So now I'm drinking two bottles of liquor a day. I'm driving drunk driving. I'm driving with an open bottle of liquor. I'm losing jobs because I'm drunk at work and slurring my words. So this is when jail starts. I see. So collectively, I spent over a year of my life incarcerated. Um, That's just from different jail stints. You never
0: went to prison?
2: Never went to prison. Um, I have faced felony charges and fought them, and they were dropped so but i have i don't know you know 30 something misdemeanors on my record wow. <laughs> um so that's always an interesting conversation yeah. <laughs> you know there there were fist fights with my dad um that i went to jail for there was a dui i ended up overdosing in the back of the cop car wow um there was like nine violation of probations cuz i couldn't stay clean and sober on probation and then I, Something I did last year was I called the Kennesaw Police Station, I called Cobb County, and I and I requested my records. Uh Kennesaw, I have a stack, a big book. I have a stack of records where I wasn't ever arrested, but my family had called the cops on me. Oh, I see. Where I stole their cars, where I forged stuff, where I pawned stuff. Wow. I never knew that. Wow. So I still, to this day, am uncovering more and more and more of the bits and pieces of my story, right. of what my family went through, of what I put them through, of what I went through, that maybe I remember, you know, it's all coming back, that kind of right. thing. Um, but what I found was at this point in my life, I'm starting to realize I don't want to do this anymore. I can't do this anymore, right? Because the heroin's not working anymore. I'm freaking shooting it up, and it's not killing my pain anymore. Mm -hmm. I can't drown out the voices in my head that are filling me full of guilt and shame because of my own actions. I'm starting to accept some responsibility. The delusion is starting to lessen and lessen. I see. I'm seeing the truth of what I've become more and more and more. Wow. And so I go to. This is my pattern. I go to jail. I stay for three months, four months, six months, long enough to dry out for my head to clear up. And I'm like, holy, you know, what am I doing? Right. What am I doing? And I deal the best way I know how to deal with, with all these emotions that are flooding me. And I'm calling my family, crying, telling them I love them. I'm so sorry. But then I get out.
0: And then it's pattern. It's it's habit. You go right back. I don't know how to not.
2: Right. So, relapses. I'm going to AA. I'm going to NA. Um, but then I'm drinking Nyquil because I can't sleep at night. Right. I so I drink Nyquil and then I'm like, ooh, I like the way this makes me feel. Then I'm drinking it 24 hours a day. Right. Then I'm drinking it on the way to cop some heroin from the bluff.
0: So you just are tra- You just go through a period of trading <laughs> out things. Yeah. To try to see what will work. But at the same time, there's something happening within you that Mm -hmm. you're starting to get close to where you want to get rid of this life. Change, So what was the final thing as far as what worked for you and, you know, how did you get clean?
2: Um, I have done that, the jail pattern, and checking myself into Kennestone Hospital. Kennestone's the hospital in Marietta. I was like, it was a revolving door for me. So my pattern was to go to jail, get out, relapse, go back to jail, get out, relapse, and then I started this pattern of, okay, I really want to stop, so I'm going to check myself in the hospital to, to detox. As long as I get the drugs out of my system, I just have to get through the withdrawals And then I won't have to use anymore. Right. What I couldn't understand is everything had to change. Right. My thought patterns, my behaviors, my belief systems, how I dealt with life, how I dealt with emotions. But I had to continue using and drinking long enough to break that delusion. Right. There's just so many layers to this. So, um... Basically, I come to the decision, I can no longer use opiates of any kind. I'm just going to drink, and then I'm drinking and I'm taking Xanax. And hallucinogens and weed, but I don't count those. Okay. Right. Um, And this is what happened. I came to the decision. I couldn't use opiates anymore. That was the devil. I had to stay away from it. But, um, you know, drinking was going okay for a while, but then I start drinking just like I use drugs. It becomes a 24 hour, 24 seven thing, right? I wake up <clears throat> at 24 years old with shakes from head to toe, full blown alcoholism. I, I have to have a drink to stop the shakes. Um, and, and what I had thought would never happen to me happened. And I could no longer lie to myself. Again, another layer of this being able to lie to myself. Mm -hmm. I could no longer lie to myself that I wasn't an alcoholic. Um, Okay, so I've gone through all of the drugs. I'm definitely a junkie. I'm definitely an addict. But alcohol I can still have. Now I'm definitely an alcoholic. I can't drown out the truth with the alcohol. I'm sleeping on a floor in my mom's little apartment. Um, I'm waking up in the morning. I'm trying to take straight vodka. I'm throwing it up. I'm taking more shots of vodka. I'm throwing it up. And this is my routine. (laughs) And I'm brushing my teeth and I'm throwing up the liquor I just drank. So I'm drinking liquor and I'm brushing my teeth, trying not to throw up again. And this is my routine. And I finally... The drugs and alcohol stopped lying to me. They stopped feeding into my delusions saying, "Well, tomorrow you're going to get your sh- sh- together." Right. "Well, tomorrow you'll be better." Right. "Well, tomorrow they could no longer lie to me. I knew the truth." Right. Um so the last time I went, I entered into detox was Halloween 2011. I killed a bottle of tequila and I killed 4 Xanax bars. And I checked myself into Kenistone. I went through detox at Highland Rivers, which is like a state-funded place. And um, when I got out, I hooked up with the people I was in detox with. I drank one last time with them. I went off with them for a weekend well, in the woods Yeah, and immediately was, was smoking spice and drinking tequila. And the next, that's like Friday night. Saturday, I wake up and I'm like, what the f- am I doing As I'm drinking alcohol, all the awareness hits me. All of the consequences and seriousness of my actions hit me. And as I'm drinking, this doesn't even taste good drink. This doesn't even make me feel better anymore. What the am I doing? I just got out of detox. I dumped my alcohol out and I haven't picked up a drink or a drug since. Wow. And I just got seven years, November 19th. That's awesome.
0: (laughs) I mean, what an incredible story journey that started so young for you, which unfortunately I don't think that that's probably unusual. Unfortunately, I think your story is – you know, common among a lot of people who start and you know, maybe their, their journey to the drug or, you know, not having the great aunt or something may be different, but the road just leads to the same path. Mm-hmm. And um, that's one of the things I know in the drug and alcohol class that we taught was, you know, drugs seem like your friend at first because they feel good. Don't mm-hmm. let somebody tell you that drugs don't make you feel good because right. they do. That's like exactly what they do. But at some point, yeah, they turn on you. They are no longer your friend, which obviously started happening to you. I just have to ask, too, you said about the spirituality of, of the night um, at the houseboat. And it almost seems like, I don't know, was that a seed for you that was planted? Because it almost seems like things started coming into your life you you weren't able to lie to yourself as much Mm -hmm. anymore so was that a turn was that really a turning point even though it took you maybe a couple more years do you feel like that was a turning point
2: yeah you said it right when you said a seed was planted there have been very small seeds planted within me throughout my story um and it and it took further investigation for those to sprout and grow
0: So I think that that is such an important thought, especially for people who, um, have a loved one who is in this struggle now, or, um, maybe somebody along the line that, that is with someone or has someone in their life with the struggle that sometimes you plant these seeds you may never see, or it may be years, but other people, I'm guessing when you said lots of seeds were planted. I'm guessing along the way you were in contact with positive people and the people that were trying to plant and did plant seeds. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, it just took a while for them to, to take root. Absolutely. Absolutely. Rehab, when I was in treatment, seeds were planted. I, I Finally, I was able to connect with one of the counselors there. His name was Heath. And he was very hardcore. He looked hardcore. He looked like an MMA fighter. And so I was like, yeah, he's a badass. <laughs> right. You know? I liked him. And he just didn't give any Fs about, you know, how he, he just put things very blunt. And he just got me. Right. And he didn't try to fight me. He didn't try to belittle me. He was like, man, I get it. You get high because you like to get high. I'm like, you're damn right. Right. But- he put it best for me, and, and I talk about this because it's so important to me, the connection he had with me. He looked at my parents when they visited, and he said, "Aaron is on the fence, and she's got the fence post up her ass. She said, addictions on this side of the fence, a new way of living is on this side of the fence, and the fence post is right up there, and it <laughs> is an uncomfortable spot for her to be in.
0: Interesting.
2: And that's where... It, the, one of the first seeds for me was planted. It took six years after that for me to get sober. Wow. But I carry that with me to this day, just like the God moment I had on the dock, just like the other moments that I had, you know, so many other God shots I had. Right. Um, and that's what I, I refer to them as God shots because it was You know, this all this anger I had towards God who what I choose to believe in as my higher power has always been there for me. I just tried to push it away and block it out because of my own anger and bitterness and resentment.
0: And that's one of the things that's amazing too that you think about, um, you know, God is with you in those darkest moments when you were at those lowest points. He was there too. So, um, That's amazing, and it's amazing how it did fester within you. Now, at some point, I'm guessing, because you have this clarity now, at some point you accepted yourself. Did you go through counseling? Was that um, part of your recovery? No. (laughs) Wow. So this work has
2: been on your own. So I joined the uh, 12-step fellowship of AA, Um, I found my home in AA over NA. Um, and I just, I did it, I did it with a sponsor and I, and I listened to every word she told me and I, and I chose to believe her and to trust her and to get vulnerable. Um, and I worked the 12 steps, which is kind of like a cleansing Mm -hmm. experience to get all that dirt and grime out we've been doing for years. Right. And it helped me build a spiritual connection. And that's what I finally found, the, this, this void that I've lived with my entire life that I've tried to fill with drugs, alcohol, selling drugs, unhealthy, toxic relationships, cutting. This void was a spiritual void and what I needed. I was trying to put the wrong puzzle piece there and it never fit. And the 12-step program and the women that took me under their wing showed me the right piece of the puzzle that fits there. Wow. But it took a lot of courage for me in that state to open up and become vulnerable and trust them right. with all of my deep, dark, dirty secrets yeah. and fears, you know. So um, a spiritual aspect in my life is very important today. Um, and, and one thing I do is, you know, is service work and try to speak a language of kindness to those struggling and that's what really fuels my spirituality today. It doesn't always have to look conventional. Like I go right. to church every Sunday. I pray every day. I read the Bible every. It doesn't always have to look conventional. Right. It's no, have I been kind to someone today? Right. You know, am I? It's a way of life. Absolutely. It's not a check the box.
0: Right. right. It, it's, a, it's a way of life. It's a lifestyle. And yep. I see that. So tell us, one of the things I always like to ask people as we conclude the interview is, um, what's your advice for people who may be listening either that, ha- that are dealing with someone they love uh, in their life or, you know, who may come across someone um, and develop a relationship or someone who's struggling right now? What is your advice to them seven years sober? Um,
2: this... We are all at different places on our journey. Some of us have grown very strong along the way. And so we're able to face and deal with um, a lot of situations that maybe some others are not. It is okay for me to go into the bluff and pull people out of there that are in their active addiction if they want to leave with me. However, a grieving mother may not be able to do that. Um, so it's a, that's a very intricate question. Um, my personal experience with that, currently I, um, I'm a storyteller, so I have to tell this story. My, my cousin, who was one of my, um, the closest person ever to me in my life, we were just a few months apart, and he was gay too. Mm-hmm. And so we grew up with this secret bond Right. And everyone thought we were twins. And so um, he was there with me through everything I've shared with you. So he has
0: beautiful red hair as well. No, he didn't. <laughs> but we
2: dyed his hair blue. OK, <laughs> so he uh, we called him blue hair. And so um, I got sober and my cousin continued to struggle with heroin. And at this point, what I thought was right for me to do at this I had tried to talk to him. He would lie to me. Um, Just like I lied to my family. Um, I would try to hang out with him, but he'd be too messed up. So it hurt me so bad, so, so deeply. It was affecting my sobriety. It was affecting my spirituality. It was affecting my peace of mind. I was sitting up at night sick, worried about him, just like my family did with me. Hmm. And I said, you know what? I've got to put up healthy boundaries. This was in 2014, so four years ago. I five, and um, I put up these boundaries with him because that's what was, I thought, right for me at the time. Um, as soon as I put those boundaries up, just a few weeks later, he ended up dying of an overdose. Mm. My last words to him, he called me, Hey, cuz, can we have lunch today? I said, Are you still getting high? Yes. I said, Then I cannot see you. And that is the last thing I said to him before he died. Um, I have lived with regret since that day, yeah. and so it's changed my whole perspective on how I interact and treat people with addiction now. At that point in time, I didn't feel like it was safe for me to be around him where I was at in my recovery. Losing him has made me stronger in my recovery, so today my philosophy is to love others for no matter where they're at in their journey. And I always tell families I work with when we're doing interventions, you want to know that you did absolutely everything you could in your power to help your loved one. Because if they die tomorrow, I don't want anyone to live with the regret that I have lived with. Hmm.
0: I think those are definitely very powerful words and coming from someone who knows it more intimately probably than most people maybe that could be listening to this for sure. So... I do, Erin, I want to tell you thank you so much for um, being willing to come and share your story and for being so candid and um, letting us in, and I know that I can probably speak for everyone who's listening that we wish you the best of luck, and we're pretty amazed at how amazing you are. So thank you for the work you're doing now with families. Um, Thank you for all of the things that you're doing to reach out to other people, and I definitely can say I think you found your purpose. Thank you. I mean so much. <laughs>
2: thanks for having me and thanks for listening. You're
1: welcome. This podcast is brought to you by Walton Wellness Inc. and the Walton County Healthcare Foundation. Email us at waltonwellness at gmail.com. Find us on the web at waltonwellness.org, Facebook, and Instagram.